Welcome to episode 232 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. It was about 1 p.m. in the afternoon on a Monday in mid-January, and I was sitting with my wife on the outside deck of a restaurant. A heat lamp hovered over us, casting warm air down towards our table. This allowed me to wear just a heavy sweatshirt and still be comfortable despite it being winter in Boston. We felt safe from COVID-19 because there was only one other occupied table, and they were on the far side of the deck from us. We took our time ordering because everything on the menu sounded amazing. The appetizer was worth the trip all by itself. Why am I describing this moment in time? Because I had lunch with my wife, sans kiddos, and that moment shifted something in me. I've enjoyed being self-employed, but I can't say I've always been a good boss to myself. Quite the contrary, I burned the candle at both ends throughout most of 2020 and only took two days off past April, Father's Day and Thanksgiving. But that's not how 2021 is going to be. And this one lunch proved that change was possible. I am the arbiter of my own schedule. If I want to take my wife out for a bite during the week while our sitter is already scheduled to be with our kiddos, why can't I make that happen? It's not the same as taking a full month off to travel around South America with my family, but it's a start. That one lunch led to a new tradition where we schedule midweek lunch dates most weeks. We're having fun exploring all the outdoor eateries in our area, and we are amazed we can sit outside during a Boston winter while enjoying a meal. It feels decadent after spending months and months living within the walls of our home, except for the occasional trip to Costco or the grocery store. It's amazing how much I've grown to appreciate the little things. Your challenge this week, there will always be more work. Don't wait to design the life you want to lead. What's something small yet significant that you could do to reclaim your schedule? Go to your calendar right now and save the time. Go a few weeks out if you have to. Celebrate every little and big win as you begin to carve out time to do the things you love or be with the people you love. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, on to this week's interview. Today's guest believes that helping people develop meaningful professional relationships is the fastest way to turn promising biomedical research into life-saving cures. She's a PhD biologist who trained at Harvard Medical School and had the opportunity to be coached by super connectors who taught her how to build human relationships to solve problems. To make that easier, she developed Curious Reactor, a life science-focused networking tool that helps participants make the most of conferences by creating a personalized match list that is short, targeted, and relevant. That way, participants can spend their time at the conference connecting with warm leads instead of crossing fingers with cold contacts. By injecting science into human networking, Curious Reactor can predict who should meet who. Please join me in welcoming Jenny Rowe. Thank you for having me. Jenny, thanks so much for joining me from around the corner from where we are, where I am today in Boston, Massachusetts. Thrilled to meet a local to interview for my show. So, um, so since the context of the show is about building strong networks, in particular, the context is leadership, share with us, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Uh, 
I think the good leaders, I think always has been uh, the people with mindset of servant leadership. And I really admire that. And people who has really contagious uh, vision and be able to instill those passion into other people through their vision. So I think those are two different you know, qualities that I really admire. The time and time after time that I realized that I have that skill was um, whenever there's whenever there's a problem. Those are type two, two different type of people when there's a fire runs toward the fire <laughs> as opposed to going against. And I think I've always had that mentality of, oh, there's a problem. I'm going to go solve it. How am I going to go solve it? Uh, do I have a tool for it? I think I... I've always had that uh, over and over throughout my academic career, as well as in business. And I think um, I'm still learning, but I think I have a natural tendency to run toward the fire. That's when I knew <laughs> I probably had the skill to be a leader. Yeah. And I like these two features that you've you've defined around leadership, this idea of servant leadership and and having like some passion around your vision that you're that you attract people and motivate them. Um I'm actually kind of curious, Jenny, like, what were you like on the playground? Like, we really roll this back, you know, not just, you know, when you're first starting your career or just in school, like, if you go all the way back, you know, were you organizing kids or you're the quiet kid watching everyone? Did did the teachers love you because, you know, you were very, like, you know, into school? Like, what, what was life like back then? Yeah, so I'm actually an introvert by nature. So when I was younger, um, so there's always this two axes of uh, nature that pulled me. I was I was an introvert, but I was really curious at everything. So I'm always sitting back uh, at observing everything. And once I figured out how you know each elements you know fit together, I would engage. So in a playground, I've always had a group of people that play with me. I've never been the one that. Uh, you know, instruct people to do something or anything like that. But I've always been, you know, playing with something. It was a group activity. We're building something together, catching animals together, bugs. I, I was a bug, you know, tom girl, <laughs> tomboy, catching bugs and animals all the time in a rural area. So I've always had those group of people. Um, although I was an introvert, I was never alone. Yeah. And it sounds like you've built pretty tight relationships then, like the people you had around you, they, that was like a close-knit group. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And and so when you were, you know, growing up, did you know science? Like, was this love and fascination of all things nature? Like, does that sort of, I mean, you're a PhD biologist. So like, is there a through line in who you were back then to like the degree you ended up achieving? Yeah, I think so. So my dad was an oceanographer and I kind of grew up in a very educational environment and my dad was a nature lover. And my first uh, fishing experience was like when I was at five and I never stopped. So I was one of those kids that you can kind of leave in the wood for a couple hours and I'll be doing my own thing, observing, just getting lost, watching stuff. And um, that would be that. So I always thought that I wanted to be a wildlife biologist and, you know, growing up watching National Geographic, uh, Jane Goodall was one of my, um, one of my heroes. So I grew up in South Korea, but I watched these uh, foreign uh, networked shows and always wanted to kind of live that lifestyle. And that really propelled me to continue to want to pursue biology degree. So this is really interesting that you were not raised in the States because I feel like um, a lot of how, you know, we think of leaders being really outspoken, 
like center of attention. Like that's a very American sort of like understanding of leadership and self-promotion is not something most people in the rest of the world believe in. And so it's really hard to like be seen um, in, you know, tout your own like expertise and all that. So is that, is, am I nailing the culture? Is that sort of some of the cultural cues you grew up, grew up with? Yeah. So the, the leaders are kind of chosen very differently, uh, in South Korea, it's really a bottom up. Um, so if you are self-spoken or self entitled yourself as a leader, it is the first cue that people will reject you. So you always have to be kind of brought up by people or appointed by a majority of people for you to be a leader. It was the same in the playground as well as in you know school, um, government structure and all that stuff. So I actually have been served as a class president multiple times, but it always has been a very democratic um you ought to be uh, appointed by people and not really self-promote. So that was really a different type of, um, yeah, skills that you need to have and culture when I moved to the States when I was 19, 20. It sounds also like a bit of diplomacy, like, that, you know, <laughs> like the idea of running for student, op, like student president, right? but you're not actually promoting yourself. I mean, that sounds honestly yeah. fine. <laughs> <laughs> I would so say different. that it's, yeah, it's, I would say more of a show, not tell um, ah, mentality. Yes. So you lead them, uh, you lead, uh, you show them by examples who you are, what kind of leadership that you're going to exercise and people will nominate you for it. And um, after that, you, you can, uh, you can, you can continue to demonstrate that as your leadership skill, but that's really subtle and different. <laughs> You know, actually making me think of someone local um, in Boston, Felix Arroyo Jr., who ran for city council. His dad was also in the city council. His dad's name is also Felix Arroyo. Um, and he um, he ran, he came and spoke. I, I taught a college course for a bit and he came and he spoke at the college course about his campaign and how they were they were running his campaign the way he wanted to lead if he had won. So very democratic. He let his team make decisions. He stepped away from meetings to go um, coach his kids softball games and left his team in charge of deciding like what was the result that he would act out. Um, Cause he said, you know, whether we win or lose, I want to make sure that we can show people that this experience is possible. And I think that sounds a lot more in line with what you're talking about. And yet the reason mm -hmm. I had him come talk about it is because it was so different from what <laughs> most people do as campaigns. So that's, that's really interesting. We'll definitely put a link in the show notes. So some of the, he's still, him and his family are still very involved in politics. His brother, I think he just ran for office again. So, um, so at what point, like you, so you make this clearly uh, a decision pretty early on. You wanted to focus in biology and you do it, which by the way, congrats. Like that's, we could have a whole show on why that's the case. <laughs> But you go to these conferences and, I, and I've had, I've dabbled into some of these conferences a little bit. I've, I've been, I've walked around and seen all the posters. Like, so I understand mm -hmm. a little of the context. So if anyone listening hasn't been to a conference, like a, a, a science focused conference, it's yeah. not about rubbing elbows, like in the way you might at, uh, I don't know, like an HR conference. Um, there's these poster 
boards that are put up all around like like a maze of them and right. you just kind of wander around looking at them and i guess talking it almost sounds like a more like an art gallery that you like correct okay <laughs> and you like chat with someone who happens to be standing nearby about this random poster that you're near looking at trying to understand and figure out and yeah. like make sense of so what what was wrong with that? What what wasn't like you're an observer, right? So like clearly this is who you are. What were you observing that for you felt like there's a limitation here? We're not meeting everyone's needs. This isn't working. Yeah. So the community that I would love to serve is not only just the scientists, but the people who are interested in science, who wants to interact with scientists. And unfortunately, scientists are self-selected group of people who are introverted, have uh, speak only one language within science, and they're kind of awkward in many ways. And uh, hey, oh wait, you said it. You said it. I didn't. I just wanted to say <laughs> <laughs> they're they're my people, so I can talk about it that way. It's okay. I'm one of them, but I kind of overcome my own um, word introverted to get out of the shell and get out of my own shell to talk to outside of science people, but. I got used to it, but there's there's this um, really kind of untapped jewel, so to speak, for a lot of scientists. Uh, like if you can tap into scientist mind, I think there's a lot more ideas and technology that can flow out of it. But because of that cultural and language barrier, often it's kind of untapped. So if you you described it perfectly of poster session in a scientific conference, but I've had, I've had so many experiences where I would be standing as a poster presenter, about 10 people will approach, let's say, and people want to kind of look at and understand your science, but don't really like to interact with people. Like the fact that I'm standing there are making them really uncomfortable. And I would you know, say, if you have any questions on my poster, I'm happy to answer. And they're like, yeah, it's okay. I'm just going to sit here and just read this poster so i'm there like one feet away from them <laughs> just looking at their face and knowing that they just are too shy to interact with me so even within the scientists that's pretty commonplace but i think there's a lot to be said to uh, about having a dialogue between human to human and what that will bring about uh, in terms of the knowledge you know advancement as well as collaboration or transferring that knowledge to someplace outside of science. So I felt like a lot of the reason that um, good ideas are trapped in academic or scholar uh, community and not, you know, bridged out to the market was that human element is just so difficult to overcome. Yeah, I mean, um, it sounds like it could really hamper significant progress, right? Because those people standing a foot apart from each other could benefit from, from meeting, right? From connecting and building some kind of relationship. But proximity isn't enough in that setting. Like Correct. I'm a person, I once, um, I had a, I was running events and I had a newspaper person come and follow me around my event. And they uh -huh. observed in the article that I had this tendency to take two people who were standing near each other and introduce them. And then I'd walk away and then the reporter noticed that these people would spend the next three minutes trying to figure out what they must, must have in common for me to mm -hmm. have introduced them. And inevitably they would find something, mm -hmm. but it wasn't, I wasn't introducing them based on that 
random mm-hmm. uncommon commonality. I was introducing them because they were standing a foot apart and not talking to each other. So I would, oh my God, you two should totally meet. And then I'd walk away. And so <laughs> you kind of need me in that description of what you just said. You need somebody right. to come in and like break some of these norms up. But I think exactly. um, the, the cultural norms might be so strong in those spaces that mm-hmm. that might be too disruptive. Like my personality in that space would probably make everyone just scurry back to their rooms. So <laughs> how do you sell for this when you know there's this, it's so important to like find new spaces for people to connect? I'm curious if you think this is true in this setting. There was a study by the International Association of Exhibitions and Events that found that 76% of respondents said that networking was a top driver for why they chose to go to an event. So basically three quarters of people. Now, how good they are once they get to the event is dismal. I mean, (laughs) everybody. I don't think anyone does very well. Um, But do you think that the intention is as high in this scenario with the participants going to these events? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, they're there to showcase their work. They love getting questions. Uh, they love people engaging with their work. I mean, they're there to sh- to show and meet other people who are interested in what they do. So intention is there, um, but social anxiety is so high. And the fact that they are not skillful at doing it just makes them just small. Um so both parties wants to talk, but just like you said, um, they're not very good at finding that common ground to have that first set of conversation. So uh, we probably will get to it later in the conversation, but what I realized what's really important is to help them break that ice in much more purposeful way. So instead of breaking the ice, talking about some generic things like weather, if you are engaging with people within, you know, science and technology and innovation, you know, let them talk about something that they're interested in. So once they get into the foot of what they're interested in or what, uh, about the science, people are super comfortable engaging in that way. But somebody has to come in and actually help them break that ice for them. So when Curious Reactor makes the match and introduce two parties together, we tell them why they have been matched and and that gives them so much more foundation and ground to go and delve right into the important conversation. How long between observing, I guess this, um, I'm going to call it a problem, you know, in the sense that you thought there was a way to improve upon the experience. How, how long between ex- noticing that and your first sort of um, iteration or pilot, like, was this like a, you thought about it for a while or because you're an action oriented person, you just like, let me just try some stuff. Yeah. So the Genesis story of Curious Reactor is um, really kind of deeply rooted in my passion to connect um, nascent and new knowledge to the world that can actually consume those knowledge and make it to an impact, whether that is a um product like drug or services, new protocols in healthcare. So um, I was, so Curious Reactor started out as connecting people to new technology. So people will express that they're looking for a new type of technology and I will match them to the technology that I think will fit their need. 
what I realized during that course of customer discovery is that people actually want to talk to people, not just look at the piece of technology or uh, research paper, because they like that human element and also wants to see the inventor behind the technology, makes them get more excited about the technology or get to understand it better. Um, they will find a different way to apply that technology. So they really wanted to meet people at the end of the day. So I'm like, okay, let me switch that around and turn my algorithm into predicting people to people. But technology is the context where they, how they want to meet. So I switched my product around as a people matching algorithm. And I basically released it out into the conference setting. And that was much more successful. Um, and people's overwhelming response was the fact that you actually introduced me and saying that you guys were matched because of um, this, you said this, and this person said that, that was so much more easier to break the ice. So it was, it was very iterative process. And I, early on, I went into the conference myself and I would grab people and ask them whether they have used our product and, you know, what they think of it, as well as we were able to kind of track which type of matches resulted more, um, exchange of emails type of thing. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. The metrics that you can capture. You, mm -hmm. Your remark, a couple of things that, were, that you made me think of, um, venture capitalists have, you know, this idea that you, you bet on the entrepreneur, not the product because mm -hmm. the product, if you, if you, the product may not work out because not all, I mean, they just don't know do, but if you believe in the entrepreneur, then they're going to come mm -hmm. up with something even better and iterate. And I think similarly, like no wonder that the people who were interested in new tech didn't just want to read about it. They wanted to talk to the person behind it and maybe think of new ways to use the technology, new, new ways to apply these principles. Um, and I'm, I'm also, I, I'm, I'm sort of my, I'm sort of feeling like heart warmed that they wanted to talk to each other that like, that really <laughs> is true. Um, even right. though it's hard and difficult and awkward and people don't know how to do it, that intention is there and people just need, um, need opportunities to do it. And what you're describing is a problem, not just in, in the setting of a science focused conference, Every I, I have spent years working with event organizers around how to design more engaging events. And the complaint I usually hear is, um, I say, what is the number one thing your participants want more of? And they say, they always say networking, but we've created all these new networking events and, and that's not working. <laughs> because they'll be like, you know, we, we made longer breaks. We, we added a networking hour. And, but they don't, they don't provide any of what you're talking about. They don't provide the structure or the introductions. Um, and what I also like is that this isn't like speed dating. I've, I've seen people try like just these short, you know, burst introductions and you meet so many, it's like when you're interviewing like all these people for a job, you can't remember who you last talked to. Like it's too much all at once. So right. about how many people do you match people with? Like, is there a, a, a minimum, a maximum that you feel is a good number to get them started? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, when it was just in-person meeting, what we basically had was sending people a cheat sheet before the in-person meeting. So we would email people out and say, these are the five people out of hundred you should talk to. And these are the reason this is what they said. This is what you said. 
Uh, now it had changed to virtual. What we were able to do is since the time of registration until the day of the event, we are able to send you know notification of new match as people roll in more in registrant pool of more people. So for the virtual event, we don't really have a limitation. Um, but I think realistically, just if I were to to think about going to a conference, if I met and had a meaningful conversation with two to three people out of, I don't care how large the venue is, that's a good event for me. Um, so we're really targeting, we, we may be throwing, you know, five to 10 people at you, but if you take a look at it, you don't have to reach out to everybody, but you make it onus to, um, contact those matches and start the conversation even before the event so that you have a rapport build up. And once you get to the venue, uh, you know who to talk to and you can have a deeper conversation. So that's sort of our goal. Um, we have had, we have experimented with people um, on average having about six matches um, in a 200 to 500 people event. And they don't act upon all of them unless they are like entrepreneurs looking for investors and all their matches have been targeted investors. Um, they, they act upon about half of those matches. Now, I wonder if you gave them eight, would they act on four? Something like that. Yeah. Do you think that it's sort of like, is it driven less by the number and more by the idea of like, I'll try it a little bit. And if you increase the number a little bit, they'll, they'll do a little more. I think it really depends on, so I'm still um, collecting data on that. It is my hypothesis. It's, it's really person dependent. So mm -hmm. some people message everybody and some people are very selective um, that also depends on the type of profession you are at. So if you are an investor, a lot of people wants to meet you. Uh, of course, we only introduce the mutual uh, complementary matches. So the investor, in order for us to match them to entrepreneurs, for example, we only match when there is a mutual interest to each other so that we don't bombard you know, um, certain people with hundreds of matches. Um, but I think whoever the the dynamic between two person if it is not 100 percent 50 50 there's uh i can almost predict who's going to reach out to who first and how many will act upon more on their matches versus not this is fascinating and you've have you taken this outside of the life sciences so it can be applied to um any other community so i would love to broaden uh the pool of people but so far we're really focused on a uh, group of people who are in the innovation ecosystem. So it doesn't have to be a life science per se, but any type of um, hard tech, if you were to start it from the idea stage all the way to bring it to the market, you have to meet tons of different people from very different discipline, from having a technical collaborators to finding a business and marketing and you know funders, and you may have to work, um, meet governmental policy people. So as you progress through that journey, um, you have to meet various people from different discipline. And that's where Curious Reactor excels the most. And Curious Reactor has been around for about three years now. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Our product has been launched about a year, year and a half ago. And um, w what's the funding like for it? Like, I, 
I, it's a great idea, but it also feels like it could just be a, a time-consuming hobby. Um, how, how are you making it into a business? Yeah, so it, it has been bootstrap uh, until now. We are, uh, we're, we're open for external funding at this point, but um, my business partner worked with me for about a year and he came in as the first angel investor for the company. And uh, we actually have given out our capability as a service so me uh, being a scientist and being able to do the business development and knowing how to create human relationship in a working uh, technology realm, I was able to offer my expertise as a uh, business developer or technology scout to the companies who wanted a little bit more than just the match. So they wanted me to take the match and actually create the relationship for them and then bring those people back to them. So I offered my ability as a, a service early on to fund. Um, but yeah, so revenue bootstrapped and yeah, offering my, my ability as a service. Yeah, that's smart. I mean, clearly um, you're a, you're in a lot of ways a translator because you understand the community and you also a, a both a willingness and an ability to talk to people who are not in the community and like that's that's artful not everyone has those skills um so the fact that you're being tapped to like help those relationships and since you so carefully match them making sure those matches actually happen nurturing them mm -hmm. i just um this idea of matching people ahead of a virtual conference or even an in-person event and then giving them like six weeks to sort of connect ahead of time i'm curious if you've done this where um, it's like how, ha or whether you've done it and, or has it impacted the first year experience? Like people who have never been to this event, do you, are you seeing from the organizer's perspective, any difference in sort of satisfaction or, um, uh, you know, one of the things I, I think a lot about is the, the rate of people don't come back, you know, the drop-off rate between years one and three for an event can mm -hmm. be dramatic, it can be 50%. And that's expensive right. that, you know, you're constantly trying to recruit people rather than yeah. retain people. So is this helping with that retention factor for people who are really new to an organization? Yeah, I definitely believe so because um, people will rate networking is really important in a conference and their return factor. So the repeat audience basically... Um, if, if they had a good networking experience, they tend to go back to the same place over and over, whether that was um, organizer did something different to make it easier for them to have a networking experience or they had a particular tool. So we had a luxury to do our proof of concept test in our one conference. And following year, the organizer brought us back uh, as a full-on service provider this year. Um, and that's where we launched our electronic um, web portal to actually connect people. Before then, it was all good old uh, email system. We did everything in the back end and just email people. This year, people had a web portal to go and interact with. So um, the, the fact that their registration rate jumped like twofold this year, I think helped a lot. And uh, having Curious Reactor was rated really high for people's satisfaction in a post-event survey. And is there a cost for the or for the organizations that are inviting you to use Curious Reactor at the conference? Like, how does that work? Right. So, uh, for people, 
for a conference organizer who wants to provide our tool to all of their attendees, basically as you know, part of their registration, that we charge them a service fee, um, and it's it's tiered by the size of the event. Um, but we're also open for partnership where we can do the revenue sharing, where if they want to offer our service to a premium group of people and uh, charge them something that we can do the revenue share with the uh, conference organizer. So pr price can be different. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, prior to the pandemic, I was known for my networking expertise. I wrote a book on networking at conferences. I did a TEDx on that. I posted this podcast around networking and leadership for, for four and a half years. And so um, I was actually in March about to launch a whole new talk. And I'd been developing for like six months around the year two experience and how there's all this attention for first timers. Um, there's the first timers orientation. There's like a special badge or sticker that they wear so they can kind of find each other. This is a lot of careful thought of this cohort of first timers who no matter what you do are going to have an overwhelming experience. That's the word they'll always use to describe their experience is overwhelming. Um, that they're going to have a drink from the fire hose, try to do everything, don't know, you know, there's, there's some things that they kind of know going in. So some percentage of those people will still come back year two, even though maybe they'll be like further to travel or something like that. It's the year two people that get thrown in. Um, I always say like they get thrown into gen pop, like, like a, you know, prison system. They're suddenly in general, general population. Right. And there's no services. There's no support. There's no court. They can't find each other. And I feel like this kind of program, even just targeted to year two participants mm -hmm. could have a profound impact because then they actually connect and engage. And then they're much more likely to come to you back to year three. And I feel like if you get people to year three, it's not hard to get them to year five. You get them to year five, this is a thing they're never going to want to miss. Like then they have a reunion every year, see the same people every year. And they start to like over the next few years, sign up for leadership and opportunities and, you know, looking for opportunities to present and all those things. So um, it, it feels like, you know, tightening this up, even if an organization didn't do, I'm, I'm sure giving this as a business idea, even if they didn't do everybody, <laughs> even if they do like a thousand people, if they just focus on the year two people, it's like, this is a special mm -hmm. thing you get. Um, that what one might get some people to come back who maybe weren't thinking about it because they're going to get access to this curious reactor. Mm -hmm. who, who might I meet, you know? And of course those relationships, like you said, will keep them coming. So um, I didn't end up going anywhere with that. Instead ended up doing virtual event design consulting. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, but I really think like uh, I want to serve people because I truly believe convening is so powerful. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious as you've developed this all, what has been most challenging about this experience for you? You feel like this all in some ways feels like it came somewhat natural to you. It sounds like you just sort of let it evolve. But was there a part of this that you were like, oh, I really, this is something I don't know a lot about. I need to like get help. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would say all along the way. Um, I'm a scientist by training. I have nothing. Um, I am very entrepreneurial. Um, if you look back on my academic career, there were a lot of moments and accomplishment that had only happened because I went outside of my realm but um the the company was started out with my overwhelming passion that i should quit science and becoming a professor and help people connect between business professionals and academic because there's so much things to be done and we're losing out on so much investment on knowledge creation if we don't connect those dots so it was 
born from my own passion, that doesn't mean that I had the right business plan to begin with. So we had a pretty long gestation period. Um, so having uh, matching technology to people didn't really work out. The monetization strategy was really wasn't there. Um, after I switched to people to people, uh, it was going pretty well until pandemic hit. And now the modality has to be a little bit different. So constant pivoting of was really difficult for me. And uh, we essentially created a smart matchmaking algorithm and I'm not a coder. So having to find the talent that helped me, helped me along in those things, um, I'm still, you know, whenever I meet a good software developer who has a natural language processing and machine learning background, like I'm always salivating toward, you know, working with them. So, you know, having those, you know, resources lined up and people lined up, and this is exactly what I'm talking about when nascent life science, you know, technology or hard technologies are being developed and brought it to the market. You constantly need different people and ideas to help you along. And if you can minimize that time of looking uh, where those peoples are, you can accelerate innovation so much faster. So yeah, those were difficult things. Um, my network helped me along a lot. Um, but yeah, it was still difficult for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, your business is the case study for the problem set that you defined. You were like, here's Correct. the problem. And here's how, like, here's an example of how we solve for that. And right. so you're iterating and living it. And, and now I want to get specific around that, which is like, okay, so you're a biologist. I assume you don't have close friends immediately uh, connected to you who are like these, you know, computer programmers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yep. how did your network, like, as you were like, I have this idea, this thing I'm noodling on, you know, like you start putting it out there. Who did you start to reach out to and how did you develop those connections when you didn't quite have them uh, at the ready? Yeah. So what I realized is a lot of times that when people are stuck like that and looking for something, they don't often broadcast that that much. So letting people know, it doesn't matter whether they're a software engineer or not, just everybody that you know, whether you're looking for a job, whether you're looking for some talent, letting people know that immediately is really important because it, it places seeds in their mind. And if they come across with uh, anybody that fits that description, they will introduce you to. So just letting everybody know at any given time what's going on in my business and what I need all the time was really important. So the developer that I'm still working with, and she's been working with us for two years, was actually my friend of friend of friend. <laughs> and the story went that I went to my friend's birthday party uh, with a group of six girls, and I was people were asking me how I was doing, how my business, and I'm like, oh, I just lost my, you know, developer today. And I was, you know, telling them, I don't know where, gonna, where I'm going to find another person. And it turns out that one of the guests in that birthday party's uh, friend living in Netherlands just quit job in uh, AWS and she had all the right skill and she just wanted to engage with people like um, startups to do freelance work instead of working for a big corporate. So on the day that she lost her job, like I lost my developer, she quit her job and we got matched by mutual people. So, but if I didn't express that's what I was looking for, people wouldn't have known. So it's really important that you broadcast that to just 
any like anybody that you know all the time. <laughs> yeah, you're making me think of David Burkus and his book, Friend of a Friend. I don't know if, are you familiar with this book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I was like, how could you not be? It's totally what you're describing. I've interviewed <laughs> him on the show. We'll put a link in the show notes uh, to um, both his uh, interview, but also his book, Friend of a Friend. Um, and that book covers a ton of science behind networking as well. It's like, it's like, it basically saves a lot of time because you just read his book, you know, to go diving into all the academics research. But, um, but it's, it's like you said, uh, in this, you know, this idea that um, people don't let it be known what they're looking for, or they try to be too selective in who they share that information with hinders their ability to have that almost spontaneous match. And um, I always say spontaneity will happen more often when you know what you're looking for. Um, and I guess in some ways we can now define it as spontaneity will happen more likely when others know what you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two-step process, but yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you stay in touch with people in your life? Like, this is something I always ask my guests, you know, you've got your inner circle of people that clearly you're, you're going to stay in touch with, but then there's like second and third layers out of people that are weaker connections. And yet, you know, these are people you like, you met, maybe you see them once a year at a conference, you worked together five years ago, but you don't have a reason to like be in each other's lives nonstop right now. So what are some habits or philosophies or practices that you have around um, sustaining and nurturing those connections? Yeah. So this is uh, advice that I've heard in uh, dating, dating, um, guru, <laughs> whatever, online dating guru. And this was, I thought was pretty brilliant. So the idea is not only how do you strengthen the relationship you already have, but how do you find, you know, other relationship? So the simple question is that, you know, how many new people or strangers do you see a day? A lot of people, a lot of times that it'll be zero for a lot of people. Same thing. If you're dating, how many uh, person that you you think you can date in a day, a lot of a lot of times that is zero. So if that is the case, if it is zero or a very low number, you need to do something to broaden that number. And the easiest thing to do is to have something going on. Let's say like once a month, you host a house party um, or something like that, and you can always say like you know, you should come to my house party. We do it every, every month and you can invite whoever you, um, you want to bring. So have some, some sort of regular activity that you do. It doesn't have to be a house party, but it's something that is inclusive that you can tell somebody as a point of touch point, um, all the time. So that's, that's, a uh, one advice. Another is working relationship always is much more stronger than just seeing and having coffee. So I love doing activity, whether that is uh, uh, athletic activity or volunteer work. So these days I am much more purposeful at going outside of my uh, circle. So let's, if I'm in a life science biotech business, I, I try to go and do something that has nothing to do with life science at all. So if it is, um, that's why I love being involved in TEDx community because it's a group of really sophisticated, smart people as oftentimes nothing to do with life science. And they have a different type of network than me. And so if I were to express who I'm looking for, oftentimes those type of uh, serendipitous introductions comes more often from outside of your 
professional network uh, within your industry. So like my friend was an architect completely outside of my life science. And that's where I found my developer. So I think having those regular activity that you enjoy doing and having that all the time, I think is really important. I've been asking this question for 225 plus episodes <laughs> and those were two incredibly valuable uh, and very specific uh, I want to repeat a little bit of this very specific um, activities people can do. And I'm grinning ear to ear because I believe so wholeheartedly in hosting and convening and the power of being a good host. And back before when, when we were allowed to all meet up in person without fear of contracting a deadly virus, um, I did this on a regular basis. Dinners, if I went to a conference, I organized dinners, conferences that came to Boston even if I wasn't planning to attend and I had friends going there or speaking there, I organized dinners. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I, you know, I so wholeheartedly agree with you. And since March 13th, I have hosted a free, no more bad zoom virtual happy hour every Friday at five o'clock Eastern. Um, and I even did it the day after Thanksgiving, I'm going to take place on Christmas, which is a Friday. Like this is a dedicated community. I have met so many hundreds of people because mm -hmm. of this, exactly what you're describing, attracting great people and having something regularly allows me to then just whoever I meet, I'm like, come on, come to this thing. Like you said, it's a standing invitation. Um, and then I also really love this idea of seeking out the kinds of people based on an activity that would, I guess, almost show you that you have some sort of shared values not identity, but shared values, which again is something I, I truly believe is more important. So the TEDx community, which you and I kind of have this, like you, we and I both have connections to TEDx Beacon Street. I presented there, you work with them. Um, and, you know, John Warner, who I also interviewed. Oh no, we actually didn't, we didn't have a chance to do that. We almost got interviewed with him years ago. Um, he's, he's an interesting guy and he tracks really interesting people. Uh, to this community. So what a, what a great thoughtful way. I mean, it sounds very purposeful and yet to you, once it's, once you're doing it, it's not hard to do. I think there's an inertia people have around seeking out new communities or hosting something regularly, but you're saying get over that and just do it because the benefits far outweigh whatever's right. holding you back. And if it is too intimidating for you to host, help somebody who's hosting, right? So you get actually two two birds and one stone there. You get to develop a working relationship with the host because you're helping them at the same time you have access to this new group of community. Wow, that's brilliant. All right, so this is my favorite wrap-up question. Uh, I'm gonna <laughs> say like, so Jenny, you and I are gonna have lots of reasons to stay connected, I know that. But let's say it's a year from now and uh, you're sharing how amazing the year has been. I wanna know what will we be celebrating what are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Uh, more strangers. <laughs> I think for me, meeting new people is so exciting. And that opens up so many doors that I haven't imagined. So they are uh, the source of new imagination. And I didn't know that. And now I know I deliberately do things so that I can meet more strangers. Well, I can't wait to celebrate that. And I, I want to sort of, underscore the fact that you are an introvert, that this is not building, <laughs> like for me, I'm an extrovert, so I get energy for meeting people. But even though this is a somewhat draining activity, you see the benefit and you found a way to fit it into your life. So you're not going to 19 things. You're choosing one that's going to have a big payoff, it sounds like. Yeah, I think for me, it's the curiosity that 
that makes me overcome my introvertness because I think people are so interesting. But the fact that it drains my energy doesn't mean that I don't want to meet them. And I yeah. feel like they're the one that broadens my horizon. Brilliant. Well, you are now formally invited, Jenny, to my Friday event, nomorebadzoom.com. And everyone listening, you're all invited <laughs> to join us as well. Um, what, what, a, what a great thing that you're planting people's ideas. They, you know, go ahead and create your own activities. So Jenny, how can people find you and follow your work? So you can come to our website, curiousreactor.com. Uh, you can, if you are a community organizer, you have a conference, you have, you run a professional association, want to connect the dot as an organizer within that uh, uh, community, come, come to us. We can help you in various ways. Um, I would love to predict who should be in the breakout room for Zoom <laughs> rather than a random group of people. Uh, Curious Reactor has that capability and I want to, you to be the gracious host being able to help people with our tool. That's brilliant. Well, I will have all those links in the show notes, including how to connect with you on LinkedIn and Twitter. Everyone, you can go to ontheschmooze.com to, to see those links. Jenny, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really great. Thank you, Robbie. I hope you've enjoyed that interview with Jenny. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 232. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as over 225 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. For nearly three years, I've been writing a weekly email with a story and sharing it as the opening to my podcast episodes. I'm often told that my lessons and challenges are very timely and deeply resonant. A new goal for 2021 is to create a book based on these stories and weekly challenges. The book's working title is Your Challenge This Week, Inspiring Stories and Lessons for Entrepreneurs. And I need your help deciding what to include. Was there a story or lesson that helped you make a shift in the way you thought or led you to taking action? I'd love to hear about it. Email me, Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. That's Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode with Jenny, please share with your friends and don't forget to subscribe for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who has achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On The Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On The Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.